Here we are in the middle of one of the most interesting stories in the whole Gospels, I think. We took up the first half of it last week. That is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And last week we covered most of the first half of the story, which consisted primarily of a conversation between Jesus and the woman, in which uh, he reveals her hidden life, we might say, uh, correctly identified her present status, exposed her weaknesses, but nonetheless showered great grace on her all the same, and uh, in fact revealed to her a very important part of his mission, which is the giving of the water of life, and explained to her some extremely important features of that, namely that it would be the well of water springing up into everlasting life. That is, once the water or the nectar given by the Master is developed within the disciple, it becomes its own source. Sometimes people say, well, if you connect with the Master, then you are dependent on him, and you become his slave, and you are not a free person. And the truth is, in my experience anyway, the truth is precisely the opposite of this. That the Master gives us that which we need to make ourselves truly free. It is true that we have to accept it from Him first. And it's true that He knows best how to develop that. And if we want to develop it, we learn that way from Him. But the fact is that the aim of the whole thing is to become truly free in the true sense of the word. Because which... Who of us is free in any meaningful sense until we have developed that way? Whether we take initiation from a master or not, until we have developed that water of life into the ocean, then we are slaves of our minds, of our senses, of anybody who is stronger than we are, of our fears, of our hopes. There is no end to what we are slaves of. So that that particular analysis is dead wrong. And the masters do not, in fact, wish ever to make disciples slaves. They wish them to be free. But they know how to do it, and they want them, like anything, to do that also. <coughs> so this was very important. Part other, another very important thing that he revealed to her was that the, the whole section, which I'll just read briefly, which we touched on at the end. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. The salvation is of the Jews. If the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We went into this last week, but I just briefly want to point out something that we did not say last week, and that is that the verse, ye worship, ye know not what, we know what we worship, the salvation is of the Jews, given to this woman in this place at this time, is a testimony to the living tradition. Remember that the Samaritans, of whom this woman as a member, uh, had accepted only the first five books of the Bible. Their canon, which is called 
these accepted sacred books of any religion are called its canon. That canon had stopped there and they did not accept any of the tradition, the spiritual tradition that followed after, which includes the esoteric spiritual tradition, part of which surfaced through the great prophets and part of which remained underground uh, and was manifesting within Judaism at that time in the Essenes and in other places too, as we have learned. The Samaritans had nothing of this because they had closed their tradition off at the end of an arbitrary cutoff point and they had said that it stopped here. And this, of course, at this time, the Jewish canon per se was still in flux. It was not yet fixed, although it pretty much had been for about two centuries, but it was still kind of open. And whenever that happens, there is a freedom of new ideas and a freedom of people being willing to listen to someone that is not present in a closed revelation context. And now, of course, shortly after this, the Jewish canon was fixed forever, uh, shortly after Jesus' death, actually, in the first century A.D., and has remained fixed ever since. We know that the Christian New Testament was fixed around 200 A.D., and uh, since then, both Judaism and Christianity have been closed unless it can be there have been some Catholic saints and others have managed to you might say almost sneak in valid spiritual insights while making sure that it was done within strictly the strict context of the Bible this is what is called bibliolatry okay, book worship and it's a great the masters say that it's a great curse and I will tell you that uh, in my experience um that the thing that, the main thing that distinguishes established religions is this arbitrary, and it is arbitrary, because there is nothing that is more irrational to believe, if we look at it, than that any given book is going to contain everything, and that any given book can be 100% accurate in all things. There is just no way that anyone is going to come to that conclusion by himself uh, by based on observation and experience or internal spiritual revelation either. It just is not a factor. And it, it, it comes up as part of the effort of every organized, established religion to perpetuate itself. In other words, if the revelation is closed and if they are the only custodians of it, then uh, then people must approach them. But the upshot of it is, is this what Jesus is saying here, because he's talking now to someone who has a closed tradition. Their Bible is fixed. They know it's five books, all very clear, and it stops there. And at this particular moment in time, that is not quite true of the Jewish establishment, the Jewish religious tradition. So this is what Jesus means in this context when he says, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. Why? Because we have paid some attention, at least, some of us, to the continuing spiritual tradition that has continued to manifest, which you don't know anything about, because according to you, the tradition closed forever with the death of Moses. And that is what he means in this context when he says that salvation is of the Jews, that the, the Jewish religion at this time was preserving that tradition. Okay, shortly after this, the disciples come back. And upon this came his disciples 
and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Remember that in the Samaritan terminology, the term Messiah, if indeed that was the term that the woman actually used, uh, had a very different context than in, than in Orthodox Judaism. It didn't mean a great king who had come and set everything right, but it meant rather a prophet after the order of Moses. In other words, a great holy man in the more strictly spiritual sense of the word, which as we saw last week is why, perhaps why, uh, Jesus was willing to reveal himself more fully to the Samaritans. Even though they had not accepted the continuing tradition. It had its advantages too, because of course the messianic prophecies, which are found mostly in the books after the first five in the Old Testament, are of a lower order, many of them, insofar as they present the Messiah as an avatar, or a someone who's going to set things right in the physical world. And this was a source of great uh, confusion to many people. Then they went out of the city and came unto him, the people of the village. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have food to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him up to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat, my food, is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all things that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And he said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, to go back to the return of the disciples, okay, um, and marvel that he talked with a woman. It was a rare thing uh, for someone... <coughs> a man traveling to speak with a woman unaccompanied in those days. It is now in the same part of the world, a very rare thing. Um, these very strict mores have not gone away. Uh, they are more astonished, apparently, that he's talking with a woman than he is that, than they are that he's talking with a Samaritan, according to the... And yet either would have been the cause for astonishment. So that tells us something about the both about the status of women generally and also about Jesus' attitude. Because even though this is not even a very good woman by moral standards, including Jesus' moral standards, uh, he is still willing to 
revealed to her as essential as as essential a part of his message as he has yet revealed to hold nothing back from her to give her as much grace as she will accept in other words um, he is willing to do that and he is in other words talking with her from the level of soul the fact that she is a woman has very little to do with what he is saying to her and I think that this is a very important part of the gospel message, perhaps one that's been ignored by the church, and also part of the message of all masters, and that is um, that in the soul there is no sex. Sanchi has spoken very movingly on this point, has pointed out that there have been women masters, that... uh, women make spiritual progress as well as men and this in a context in India you know it is often been customary for if if a husband takes a guru uh, the wife does not necessarily do that I'm not speaking now of Santmat I'm speaking in, in traditional Hindu terms the wife does not need to take a guru because her husband is her guru that's the tradition and the masters uh, turn that tradition top, topsy-turvy and that is the meaning. All those stories that the masters tell about the women who got initiated when their husbands didn't want to, but were initiated anyway, snuck out to satsang, as we heard a few weeks ago. Uh, and in some cases, as in the Anurag Sagar, were responsible for saving their husbands, in effect becoming their husband's guru. All this represents a complete turnabout of um, what you might call Kal's tradition. And it's a very... I think quite a remarkable aspect of the teaching of the masters, which, like many other aspects of their teachings that, that have social implications, they don't emphasize in an outer way, but they simply insist on them. Same as uh, insisting on feeding everyone who comes to them, regardless of caste, for example, and that sort of thing. Anyway, something like that is happening here, and the disciples are surprised. This is apparently, although it's hard to tell the chronology sometimes fairly early on in Jesus' mission, and it is likely that certain aspects of that have not been discovered by the disciples as yet, so that they are surprised that he would treat a woman, in other words, as a human being. That is the meaning of the passage, ultimately, and uh, break social conventions in order to do it. But they're afraid. They don't say, uh, why are you talking with her? They know better than that. So the woman left her water pot. In other words, she did not... She came out to get water, after all, and found Jesus there. The impact of the conversation is such that she has forgotten why she came and has now only got one idea in her mind, and that is to go in and tell the other people in the village uh, to come and see this man who told her all things that ever she did. In the meantime, uh, another dialogue is taking place. The disciples have brought food and they're telling the master to eat. But he says, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. In other words, his business with the woman and the Samaritans of that village (coughs) is the immediate meaning of that. And he does not wish to eat, apparently, until that is over, until she comes back with them. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. 
a very beautiful statement that all masters have made one way or another, uh, implied is regardless of what I want as a separate entity. What, as Jesus said later in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then a very interesting image. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. This is a popular proverb. Okay, in Israel at this time, when you planted wheat, uh, there was a four-month growing season, and then it was reaped. And this is a proverb then. When you plant, you say, there are four months, and then the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. In other words, this is a very interesting verse, especially in the light of a lot of subsequent Christian theology. There are several ways to understand it, both this and the verse following. But one of them is that the harvesting has come along with the sowing. In other words, that there is a, a, uh, a real sense in which there is no difference between the sowing of the seed and the harvesting. The sowing, is, if, if he's still speaking now of the immediate context, that is the planting of the seed in the Samaritans of this particular village. The sowing is happening at the same time they are also being reaped. You can get a sense of this if you think back or think of, um, you know, try to differentiate in your own experiences with the master. Uh, there are certain aspects of it that can qualify as sowing, that is something is planted in you, and there are other aspects that can be described as reaping. That is, something has come forth to fruition. It isn't a, a thing that is only everything happens in one time and then it comes forth in another. It's a continuous process involving a lot of different aspects of ourselves. And it's a very real thing. The planting really happens and so does the reaping. Um, but it's not a thing that, that really has to do with time in a traditional sense. Another way of understanding this, in the next verse which says, and he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Uh, another one of several ways to understand this is that instead of what many people who have thought about the teachings of Jesus have concluded, that there is going to be a last judgment at the end of the world, and that then the people who are supposedly saved will be selected at that time and others will be thrown into hell. That instead of that, this is a process that is happening all the time. Uh, what is called realized eschatology in the technical books. That is to say that the last judgment happens on an individual basis continually. At, certainly after a person dies. Even apart from that, um, at many different points in their life a so-called last judgment, certainly a um, continuing judgment may be taking place and reaping is going on. In other words, a particular fruit is plucked. Okay, if we know anything about the law of karma, uh, of which this is a reference to, we know that this is exactly the point of it, that fruits are coming into maturity and being uh, eaten all the time. The next verse, and herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. 
Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. This is a puzzling verse for many people. Uh, it seems to imply that somebody else has done work before Jesus has. And uh, the verse appears to be another version of that statement that the modern masters make so often. Sanchi has made it many times. One gardener plants, uh, another gardener waters and fertilizes. And it seems to imply um, the work of one master passing on to another. One scholar, at least, has pointed out that this particular village in Samaria is not very far from a place where John the Baptist and his disciples were working at that time. And he suggests that Jesus is specifically referring to the um, to John and his disciples, who, at this point, presumably, John is in prison. His disciples may be dispersed, but uh, nonetheless, they planted seeds, and people are now coming to Jesus and his disciples in order to follow through on that which they have received already. I think that that is the correct uh, saying. Another one, some of these people will be carrying on the work in the future, of course, and it is possible also that Jesus is referring to his own work, that he is planting seeds that they are going to have to uh, later on help bring about into fulfillment. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, we have heard him ourselves. Okay. First, the impact that he made on the woman. Again, these things are, I have often seen, the master come into a place and there could be uh, seemingly by chance one person there uh, through whom many other people uh, came to believe because of the impact that the master could make on one person uh, can have a lot of reverberations. This is obviously what has happened here. And these people who didn't have access to the uh, spiritual tradition, the hidden tradition of the Jewish people, these people who are totally unprepared from that point of view, these people who are despised by the uh, not only the Jewish religious establishment, but by the common uh, people of Judea and Galilee, these people who are considered to be racially, racially and religiously inferior to the Jews, by the Jews, and by themselves, as was indicated when the woman first spoke to Jesus, these people still had enough ability to recognize the living master so that they persuaded him to remain there with him two complete days. And we can only guess what came about during those two days. It does not say, but we can assume, knowing what we have learned already, that Jesus did initiate a large number of people and that uh, their comment, now we believe not because of thy saying, but because we have heard him ourselves, does not imply or mean only hearing physical outer words, but the word him, by the way, is a supplied in the King James Version. If any of you read the King James Bible and you notice these words in italics scattered about, what that means is that that word is not in the original language. 
and that the translators have supplied it in order to make the meaning clearer. Occasionally, uh, they may have made a mistake, may not be fully aware of some things, and it's possible we can always then try reading it without that word. In this sentence, the word him is supplied, it's in italics. And if we read, now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard ourselves and know, we can um, perhaps assume that they are referring to the inner sound current, which they have now heard. Uh, it's a remarkable story, the, this particular one. And uh, as I said last week, it has attracted the attention of many, many people. Painters down through the ages have painted this scene. Uh, novelists have written novels about it. Um, it's it's a, a fascinating, fascinating encounter on every level. And it's, it is, someone has said it's either basically historical or the person who wrote it is a master of fiction. Because uh, not only is the, the way in which the... Um, the woman and Jesus and the disciples and the other members of the village are all relate to each other and, and the way in which um, they bring things out of each other is psychologically very true. But the, the attention to little detail, the woman leaving her water pot, for example, the way the woman changes the subject when Jesus hits too close to home about her husband and so forth, uh, all of these things are, are very true to life. And... Uh, it's a very important story. And the two, again, the two principal revelations that we went into last week, the idea of the water of life and how that works and the idea of the uh, worshipping the Father in spirit and in truth, which, as we have suggested, are not two separate things, but a whatever that phrase is that means in the Hebrew language, the... Uh, use of two synonyms to give emphasis one after the other. So, we will continue next week.